A phrase I use a lot on this podcast is, unless you write literary fiction. When it comes to marketing and writing, literary fiction sometimes stands apart. So what is literary fiction? How is it different and how do you market it successfully? We're going to talk about all of this and more on this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, CEO of Author Media and Vulcan of Book Marketing, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and we have a very special guest today. She's the editor and founder of The Hot Sheet, which is an essential industry newsletter for authors, and she's also the author of The Business of Being a Writer, which is a book that I have read and personally endorsed. It's an excellent book, and she's also the author of Publishing 101, which I have not read, but I imagine is still very good. Jane Friedman, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. So what is literary fiction? We have to get that out of the way first. (laughs) It's one of the most tortured questions ever because everyone's going to define it a little differently. There are a lot of arguments about what literary fiction is. But I think one of the easiest shortcuts to understanding it is it's the sort of fiction that usually the authors hope it will get assigned in college classes, that it rewards rereading um, it could win a major literary award, like it, uh, the National Book Award in the United States, or maybe the Nobel Prize by the end of your life. You know, things that are not beach reads. You know, they're meant to be taken seriously. They're not clear cut, and usually the language, shall we say, is elevated. So the writers are taking seriously both the story and the expression of the story. So if it has a giant dragon fighting a spaceship on the cover, probably not literary fiction. (laughs) Probably not, but this is where you can get into some really fierce arguments about what literary means, who has ownership of what literary is, and how genre and literary intersect. But yes, uh, it's, it's sometimes defined by what it's not, and it's not science fiction fantasy or romance, or although these things, you know, This is not to say that genre fiction is poorly written. That's not the point. Um, Send your angry emails to Jane at (laughs) janefriedman.com. Yes. Um, But you don't like I, you know, I went to school for creative writing. I went to uh, I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts. This would also apply to Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. When you go into those programs, you don't generally see genre fiction being read. Um, Now, we can argue about that, whether it's right or wrong, but that's one way you know you're going to be encountering literary fiction, seeing it, reading it, writing it in an MFA program. Yeah, one way I like to think of it is that uh, with kind of traditional fiction or non-literary fiction, the language, the writing is seen as a means. It's a, a way of getting to a goal. So for nonfiction, it's a way for convincing you of an argument or helping you think in a new way. And for fiction, it's just a way of telling the story. Whereas in literary fiction, the writing itself isn't necessarily the goal, but it's a part of the goal. So I, I don't just want to, if I'm writing a literary novel, I'm not just wanting to write a story. I'm also wanting the words themselves to be beautiful, the sentences to be beautiful, and the, the words are the means and the end. Yes, Absolutely. So now that begs the question, what makes literary fiction different from a marketing perspective? Because the the nice definition you didn't give is literary fiction is fiction that is hard to sell. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's the other definition. Uh, So the thing with literary fiction, it kind of goes back to the MFA program issue I, I spoke of. So that produces a certain community. And 
and it's a culture, it's a value system. And there are all of these pieces to the value system. And it involves things like who's going to review you and the names and the reputation of the people who review you. So I'll use a shortcut to kind of understanding what I mean by this culture thing. Flashback to the mid 2000s, uh, Oprah's book club, when it was still in operation. Um, you know, one of the best ways to sell a book was to be featured in her book club. And that club ended like the, its first iteration ended when she chose Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections as a pick, which is like a kind of a landmark literary novel. Jonathan Franzen is like the poster child for literary fiction in the U.S. When that pick happened, Franzen felt conflicted because it might have damaged his literary credibility, essentially, to be chosen by Oprah, who was known for picking more commercially appealing best-selling sorts of books. And this insulted Oprah and she ended the book club. That's like, that's the sort of weight that the, that literary fiction has within, within its own community. Like we, there's like status anxiety associated with it. Yeah. I was going to say status seems to be really important with literary fiction. Like anybody can write a dragon book or a romance. They don't need to have, you know, be a part of the club. But in some ways, it seems like literary fiction, you really have to be living in a really nice apartment in New York City and like <laughs> going to the right parties. Like it's not something for people from low status areas to to be a part of. They're not even invited to the parties. Is that an unfair assessment or is that kind of how it is? I don't think it's unfair. It's it's very clubby. It's about who you know and who's reading you and who's talking about you and who you got taught or mentored by and what sort of workshops accepted you or which programs accepted you. Did you go to Iowa, Columbia? Like I how how to put it? Like I don't think looking at it from the outside, it looks very admirable, you know, like how clubby it is. And it has resulted in real, like some diversity problems for the publishing industry, which are now, you know, coming to the forefront. But it is very much kind of like that, which is why marketing a literary novel is so difficult unless you have some sort of inroads into that club. Because a lot of the traditional marketing would diminish your status. Right? <laughs> yes. Since this, it's since it's such a high status. I mean, this is not in the board game world. We have this concept that there are beer and pretzels board games and wine and cheese board games, right? In the sophisticated board game, you're like you're going to sit down and play this simulation of World War II, or like different tanks have different values, and it's an eight-hour game. That's a wine and cheese game, right? Where it's like Monopoly <laughs> is a beer and pretzels game, right? And so the way you approach the marketing of literary fiction, which is very much a wine and cheese you know, genre, right? The, the way that it sells is people at, you know, thousand dollar plate meetings are talking about your book to other people who are paying a thousand dollars plate. And so Amazon ads may not do much for you if you're literary fiction or, or, you know, have you seen that work? Well, that's the thing. I think there's always ways to make it work, but you do have to have the right signaling, like so much of it is about signaling. Now there, there are like two pieces to this that are kind of aggravating. One piece you alluded to, which is literary authors don't typically market themselves because it's seen as beneath them. Or it would tarnish the whole enterprise to be seen as marketing your book or to be on social media or any of that. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is that the audience that you might be marketing to 
is really concerned with some of the signals that indicate, oh, this matches my identity, or this is the sort of book I ought to be reading in order to keep up with whatever community I'm part of. And so Amazon ads aren't typically how that sort of audience finds out about its next read, but it doesn't mean that they wouldn't work. It just, you have to be really strategic. Like you wouldn't, you, you would have to have the right cover and the right description and all the right signs that show people it's okay if you found this book through like a book bub or an Amazon ad or a Facebook ad. <laughs> We're not going to judge you. Uh, if you look at the ancestry of literary fiction, it used to be by aristocrats for aristocrats, right? It was for the landed gentry who didn't need to work, right? <laughs> Working was seen as this really like thing that's beneath you. That's, you know, you have a steward who looks after your estates. And so why would you market your book? Like you needed the money from your book. And obviously literary fiction is no longer written by aristocrats for aristocrats. I mean, it is, but hopefully it's a little <laughs> more inclusive now than that. But some of that kind of perception is still there. And one of the things I often say is, you know, book awards don't matter. Readers don't care what awards you write unless you write literary fiction. And then suddenly, you know, the fact that you won a Pulitzer Surprise or you won some of these more prestigious awards really does matter. And so uh, walk us through that, because this is one of these kind of bizarre worlds where literary fiction folks really do follow who's winning the award. So which awards are important and kind of walk us through a word world? Yeah, so the awards are quite important. And they're, I think what's so challenging is that there are so many of them and they're all in a kind of pecking order, right? And so if you're outside of this culture, you might not know what the pecking order is or which ones you need, and it gets messy really quickly. But you know, definitely, if you look in the United States, you've got things like the National Book Award or the Pulitzer. You've got the Penn Awards. They have like a whole range of awards for different types of works. And you also have some fairly important genre-specific awards, like the Whiting Award. Um, I think they actually, do they have one? I can't remember now if they have one for fiction, but they're strongly known for creative nonfiction awards. So it is important for literary authors to be submitting their book to the award. But the truth is a lot of these awards won't even accept your application or your book unless your publisher is submitting it. So it's not like this is the panacea or that like this isn't, they're competitive anyway, but you can't just send off your book and expect to be considered. Your publisher also has to be supporting you. There's no submissions department at the Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> it's, it's not like a, you know, Regis review, uh, you know, something like that. It's like, oh, yeah, you pay $500 and they'll look at your book and try this side of it. It's deserving of a Nobel Prize. So you're talking about the traditional publishers. And a lot of people don't realize this, but traditional publishers pay money to get books submitted to various awards. And this is true, not just for literary fiction, but across the board. And so kind of the first panel of readers you have to convince are the publisher because since they have to pay per book that gets submitted you know they may have published 100 or 200 books for that imprint uh, this year and they may only pick one or two to submit for any given award and if you're independently published often you're not even eligible for the award and so there's so much to unpack here but are there any tips for winning awards or is it just a matter of writing the very best book or ha having gone to the most prestigious mfa program like how does that affect it if you're self-publishing or if you're at a small press where probably it's going to be you submitting to the award and maybe not your publisher, you know, there are some awards that I would consider like more accessible where it's not about who you know or that you got reviewed in a certain way by this certain outlet. They're like the 
Benjamin Franklin Awards with the IBPA, the Independent Book Publishers Association. There's a really wonderful program run by Biblioboard called the Indie Author Project, which is a librarian selected award. And there are maybe 15 or 16 US states and some Canadian territories that participate in that. And those are, you don't even have to pay to enter that one, um, although they only offer it for fiction and maybe memoir. I can't recall now. So it does have some limitations there. You have to really, because some awards are essentially for-profit enterprises where they're making money through the submission fees, you have to be really selective in where you decide to submit because some of these are really, they're just there to take your money and then charge you for additional marketing if you win. And nobody cares about that award. So there's the handful of awards that people care about and there are maybe thousands of awards that just find, oh, wow, we can make money off of authors. Precisely, yeah. Yeah, so you have to look at the after effects for an author. You have to do your research and see, okay, what did the prize do to support that winner? Did the winner go on to do other things? You have to study the outcome. And do you know of any lists or kind of curators of here are the prestigious awards or you know the the pecking order? Is is that published anywhere? Well, I wouldn't say the pecking order is really published anywhere. You just come to understand it over time. But poets and writers, if you're looking for literary style awards, they have a really nice free database at their site, which is a good place to start. And that's poetsandwriters.com? It's actually pw.org. Short and prestigious, very, very in line with what we're talking about. (laughs) So uh, now one of the groups of people who who struggle with kind of the status that we're talking about, especially in the literary world, are indie authors. Is literary fiction open to independent authors or is it kind of this situation where in general you have to have already been accepted by a, a prestigious publishing house before the rest of it really can open to you? I would say you have to be a pretty charismatic individual if you're going to approach the literary market as a self-publishing author from book one. I think there's a lot of leeway for people who've already got some traditional publishing experience under their belt. They've already had a couple books come out from the recognized publishers in the literary community. They've already gotten some of the reviews from like the New York Times or whatever the important publications are for, you know, like if it if it's poetry, it might be, you know, poetry, the literary journal that's important. In any event, you've already got the names, you've got the stature, you've got some credibility. You've been invited to the parties. <laughs> Precisely. Then, you know, you can look a little bit more punk or indie or what cool if you go off and do some things by yourself. And usually it's possible to go back. So you might cross back and forth. So then I think it's very doable. There are authors, uh, Caroline Preston is one who I've seen do this successfully. And there are others. But if you were just going to self-publish from the very get-go, again, yeah, I think you would just have to be such a go-getter and not care at all about kind of the way people will look down their nose at you when, you know, you'll just have to be prepared to be ignored for a very long time. And maybe move to New York City. <laughs> so you can go to those parties yes (laughs) i I know we're i i know we're painting literary fiction with kind of this this dark brush but there really are a lot of people who do enjoy reading literary fiction it's just that there's so few gatekeepers that determine what the good literary fiction what the true literary literary fiction is and is that something that you see changing you know or is that just how it's going to be 
I don't see it changing anytime soon. Although, as I alluded to earlier, there are these diversity issues that are coming to the fore. And I think there's more recognition that small and independent publishers, that's where some of the truly more innovative publishing is coming from, some of the important voices. And definitely, if you look at an independent house like Grove Atlantic, it's like, I don't know, it's one of the literary houses, but it's not owned by one of the big five. Or big four. Or big four. <laughs> Correct. Big four. Soon Pretty soon it will be the big three. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, they've, I think, published at least a couple of the most recent big award winners. And, and, and then those authors move on to one of the big four. So you can see that there are nooks and crannies where important work gets accepted and it's maybe not quite on the radar of the big four or big five, but it's still coming from the literary houses, you know, and, and they do take more risks and they're not paying big advances, but still the community that supports it, I, it's hard to see that changing like independent bookstores and the New York times and, and the, the book bloggers that are more literary, you know, the literary podcasters. Now there's lit hub. That's like lit hub is like the, it's like literary fiction solution to marketing is is now I think wrapped up in LitHub. If you're familiar with that site, so tell us a little bit about LitHub. So LitHub was spearheaded by some of the biggest names in literary publishing, including Grove Atlantic, which I mentioned earlier, Andy Hunter, who launched Bookshop, which some of you may be familiar you may be familiar with as the alternative now, the virtuous alternative to shopping at Amazon for your books. So it was started by these figures in literary publishing who basically wanted to create the HuffPo of literary community. And they've been very successful at it, I think. Their site's very well trafficked. They've got multiple podcasts. They even have a crime reads offshoot because crime can be literary too. So yeah, it's been interesting to watch. Yeah, I know the Golden Chalice at the end of literary fiction isn't actually that review in the New York Times, at least not financially. It's having thousands of high school teachers force their students to buy your book. <laughs> so what a lot of people don't realize is that the education side of publishing, textbook side, is just as much money as all of the rest of commercial publishing combined. So if, if you're like put the stacks of money, more or less every year they equal. And so like all of these millions of fiction authors are fighting over their half of the stack. And meanwhile, there's a handful of professors who are writing textbooks that students are required to spend $350 to buy. Uh, at least that's what textbooks were when I went to school. I imagine they're even more now. Um, and, and that's that's a lot of money. And, you know, while your literary fiction won't be you know sold for $350, it still will be purchased by thousands or tens of thousands of students uh, every year. And that can be an enduring amount of money. So uh, how does that work? Like, who are the gatekeepers in getting English professors and English teachers to know about your book? Well, I would say one of the first steps would be uh, getting clued into the AWP community. So this is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. It's in the US at least. So this is in Canada. It's a collection of more than a thousand creative writing programs and creative writing teachers. They all convene annually at a conference, which has a book fair. And they talk about things like how to teach creative writing and what sorts of things should you put on your syllabus and, and all the rest of it. So hopefully your publisher 
or if you're independently published, you would want to go to this event, but hopefully your publisher would be there with your books on display. They would be advertising in the program, which is like the size of a phone book. I bet. Oh, it's incredible. And then, you know, there are other AWP related marketing activities that you could participate in. I think Poets and Writers is the other side of that. Poets and Writers is like for I guess you kind of graduate from AWP to, to poets and writers after you're out of the creative writing programs. And it serves similarly in that the advertisements and the classifieds all point to books and things that professors of creative writing are going to see. So it's just making sure your book appears again and again in those channels that they pay attention to, aside from winning awards and such. Winning awards and the part that we're not talking about, but really needs to be stressed, actually writing a good literary novel. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Uh, this is the first button, right? None of the other buttons you can get to line up if the actual writing isn't good. So we talked about schools. Let's talk briefly about libraries, because I know that that's another channel that can be really big for literary novels. So what's the path into libraries for a literary author? If you're independently published, then you really need to get your ebook distributed into OverDrive, which is the big distributor to libraries. And that can be done through the distributors like Smashwords or Drafted Digital. And then for the print distribution, if you're using Ingram Spark, then libraries will be able to order your print book, but they might not know it exists. So that's when we come into the question of how much time do you really want to spend approaching libraries? Basically one-on-one and saying, hey, my book is coming available. I'm doing a marketing campaign to drive patrons to your library uh, to check out this book. I mean, it has to be that specific. You have to detail what you're going to do. This is where your advertising can actually be useful, like your online, like the Facebook ads or other ads where you let people know, hey, this book is available. Check, check your local branch. And so the library sees that something's in it for them. Now, this all assumes that the library is going to be accepting of your book in the first place. So if you're self-published, as you probably know, um, if you have no reviews, if no one's vouched for you, um, a librarian's probably going to be pretty skeptical and they'll want to see something that helps encourage them that the book is quality without them having to read it. Yeah. And and there's uh, some publications I know that the librarians put a lot of stock in. So it's not just like Amazon reviews. It's also like Kirkus reviews, I think are important for librarians. And then the uh, Publishers Weekly reviews. Um, I think, what is the other one? Library Journal, I think is the name of it. It's a publication specifically for librarians. Are are there any others I'm, I'm not remembering? If you're writing children's work, School Library Journal becomes pretty important. But yeah, you just mentioned the big ones. So again, it's, it's back to gatekeepers. That's like the theme of this episode. So if you're an indie author and you're like, I finally escaped all the gatekeepers, I'm going to write literary fiction. It's like, sorry, <laughs> all the gatekeepers yeah. are still there. And in many ways, if you think of it like a um, medieval or even an ancient city, you'd have the ancient city where you'd have the wall around the city. And that's kind of the walls around publishing, right? Getting published, there's work to get published. And indie publishing has has destroyed that outer wall. But in most cities in, in the ancient world, they'd have what they call the citadel, which is often like a mm. castle or a, like a place of government inside of the city. So for instance, when the Gauls burned Rome to the ground in 320 BC or whenever, um, they never took the citadel. They took all of Rome except for the citadel but the Citadel was the second castle that, they, that was just too much effort and the Gauls ended up leaving without 
fully destroying Rome, which is why Rome, you know, grew to eventually conquer the Gauls and make them really regret it, <laughs> not doing anything about them. And so, but for kind of the way I see it is that the literary world, literary fiction is that citadel inside the city. And so like just getting published doesn't give you access to this kind of second citadel. But just like in the ancient world, that's where the money was stored for the city, right? That's where the government was run. That's where the treasury was. And, you know, literary novels, the the top ones are incredibly profitable. Like there's a reason why all of these fancy parties happen and all of these, you know, publications uh, make so much money and why people are drinking their wine and cheese. It's because they can afford it. <laughs> like At the top of the pyramid, it is a really good view. Yeah, the most successful literary novels are very, very, very successful. I think but it's, it's always dangerous, especially for students in these creative writing programs. They see that as a goal, but it's such a small percentage, as it is in commercial publishing, that actually reach that pinnacle. Um, but yeah, the literary books can be as successful as the Stephen King sorts of books. Yeah. And, you know, if you're To Kill a Mockingbird, right, it's recommended in every English class around the country. You only need to write one book. <laughs> you guys <laughs> yeah. still have one of the best-selling books. <laughs> Uh, every year. One of the things I like about uh, what you do is that you, you're kind of the opposite of me in that I'm trying to introduce literary fiction to, you know, the business minded authors. You're trying to introduce kind of business thinking to literary fiction authors. They're like, did you know that being an author can be a business? Uh, so tell us a little bit about your book, uh, The Business of Being a Writer. Yeah, so I wrote it with the creative writing student in mind, because when I would go to conferences like the AWP conference, I mentioned earlier, you'd see the same wake-up call happening again and again, session after session. And panelists, too, people who had moved on into their careers after being attendees or students saying, I wish someone had told me that I wouldn't make any money at this. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, who told you that you would? Uh, (laughs) Like, why was this an assumption in the first place? Every high school student is told, go to college and you'll get a good job (laughs) and make lots of money. And what they're never told is what major you pick really matters. (laughs) Not everyone's a computer science major. Yeah, it's just astonishing the level of expectation or I don't maybe I thought maybe part of it's that people see their professors and they're making a living and they got a job. But those jobs are far and few between at this point. So I also, in addition to just seeing kind of the uh, unmet expectations of what was going to happen, I just saw a lot of questions surrounding, well, if I am going to get published, what what is it that I need to do logistically? And if I want to earn money that equates to a living, what else can I do aside from publishing a book? There's frankly too much book focus in the literary community. And there's also you know, this idea that, oh, I can't, I can't share things on social media before I'm really done with them, or I can't, you know, I'm, I have to go off into my garret and do my weird writer thing. And then I'm going to come back, bestow my genius on the world, and that equals profit. And so the book's trying to destroy that myth. Yeah, all those drugs you're doing, those aren't actually going to make you a better writer. <laughs> those, those were side effects for the writers in the, you know, 1920s. So that didn't make them good writers either. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, I, I really like that kind of business f- approach. You know, it's in the, you know, we're going to get real businessy, but in the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the habits of highly effective people is to begin with the end in mind. And to do that, you have to know what that end is, because 
otherwise it very easily is a Ponzi scheme where you're like, look at this, you know, millionaire author. You too can be a millionaire author. I have to do is spend $50,000 on an MFA degree and then you can make millions of dollars. And what you're not seeing is that, you know, last year, none of the students became millionaires. <laughs> the year before, none of the students became millionaires. And then the year before that, one of them did, right? It's a very, very rare outcome. And what ends up happening is it's a lot like music school, right? There's a handful of famous musicians and everybody else ends up being music teachers. And for MFA students, a lot of them become editors. A lot of them get jobs in other industries. Some of them become English teachers. But your book isn't really about that. It's not like, oh, now that you fail at writing a novel, here are other (laughs) things you can do with those skills. Correct. Yeah, I'm trying to ease people into the idea that by sharing their work, by connecting with people in the community through literary citizenship, um, by having an online presence, by doing all of these things, they're just going to have a much more robust and interesting career rather than relying on basically a, a publisher to pull them through. I think there's a, too much dependency that enters into the into the mindset of someone in a writing, a creative writing school, like, oh, I, I have to be selected by a publisher. I have to receive this validation before I can continue. And it's like, no, you don't. There's a lot you can do. But I mean, you kind of do if it's literary. Well, I mean, true, but to earn a living. There are other kinds of fiction out there. Is that what you're saying? There is romance and dragon book and the rest of it. <laughs> there, there are other things you can write. Um, there are other ways to make money aside from just being paid by a publisher. If you want to write books, then certainly you can do that, but you may have to compromise. If you only want to write books, you may have to compromise in terms of the genre that you're writing in or how fast you write them. Um, you might have to think more about the market if that's all you really want to do. So I guess this, the short bit of the message is, sure, you can write whatever you want and play the literary game if you want, but you're going to need a rich husband or spouse or inheritance <laughs> or a day job in order to make that work. And this is real talk, ladies and gentlemen, because that really <laughs> is, if you look at the successful authors, often they had to grind for 10 or 20 years not getting any results. And it was a rich spouse that pulled them through or that inheritance that they have. That they really are the landed gentry, you know, that have a trust fund that's supporting uh, their writing. And this is less true with genre fiction. And if you're writing military sci-fi, as a reader of military sci-fi, I will say, I don't care what awards you've got. <laughs> right? I, I want the space Marines, you know, shooting the space aliens. And I, you know, I'm expecting certain tropes as a reader and it's a different kind of game. And it's a more approachable game in that there are fewer gatekeepers and the readers themselves act as gatekeepers for themselves more where they're making their own choice on, you know, looking at the Amazon reviews and trying to decide it. Whereas I feel like with literary fiction, there's a handful of very influential people that really dictate what others read, sometimes literally forcing them, you will read this book and write me an essay on it, or you will get a failing grade in this class. Like there's a lot of power in literary fiction and there's, and there's less kind of structural power outside of it. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to something you mentioned earlier about knowing what is the end point or what, what's, what's the end goal of what you're doing. And it's, you know, this happened to me when I was in a creative writing program it was fiction that was probably most highly valued because that's where you saw both the fame and the commercial success come together. It's hard to do that with poetry, 
uh, more achievable with fiction. And I felt like I had to write fiction if I wanted to advance in my career, if I wasn't going to be a professor of poetry. But I, I actually wasn't interested in writing fiction. And it took me years after I was out of college to realize I this actually isn't compelling to me. Um, I'm doing it because this is it, this was just part of the cultural value system I was taught. And so I I really think it takes time and self-awareness for the average writer, especially when coming out of a creative writing program, to understand actually what they want out of this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know this isn't a podcast for students, but there's a few things I really want to tell like every uh, high school kid going into college. And one is try to get an internship or some kind of experience in the field of that you're studying because I know, especially in law, I know so many students get spend four years in school and then three years in law school only to spend a week at a law firm. And they'd be like, I hate this. I hate my life. And now I'm a hundred thousand dollars in debt. <laughs> and the only way to pay it off is to continue on the path of being a lawyer. It's like, if you would have just tried it ahead of time, you'd have realized there are other ways. You know, maybe you're, you really care about the community and society and you want to help. And being a social worker would have really been the better path and it would have been an easier path and a more rewarding, uh, more fulfilling path. Or maybe becoming a pastor. You know, there's so many other ways of accomplishing that that aren't kind of the stereotypical high prestige ways. And this is one of those things that I think is really important. It's like, why are you writing? Are you writing because you want prestige and acclaim? Because Potentially, literary fiction gives that better than anything else, right? The Nobel Prize is never going to be given to, you know, a military sci-fi writer who's having aliens shot by space marines. <laughs> I mean, next, watch in 2020, that is exactly <laughs> going to get it. <laughs> the year. But, but it's very unlikely, right? Um, and so if, if that's your goal, you need to be honest with yourself about that goal. But I think that for most writers, they're, they're writing because they're wanting to make a difference in the world or they're writing because they're wanting to provide for their family. And both of those goals often can be better accomplished outside of literary fiction because you have a potential to reach more readers. The, the literary fiction, there's not a lot of people who choose to read literary fiction in terms of total noses, right? Most people are forced to read literary fiction by their teachers and professors. And so you're ultimately only reaching a small group of people. Now, granted, those people are wealthy, powerful, influential, well-educated ed people, and there's value in reaching them. But it's not the only way to reach them because you know what? Even people who read literary fiction have a Netflix subscription. <laughs> they they yes. listen to regular music like everybody else. Yes. I can't, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> so where can people find out uh, more about you? Uh, best place to go is janefriedman.com. So everything I do ultimately spins out from there, including my newsletters and classes and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, and real quick, let's let's talk about the hot sheet because that's a really useful resource that you provide for authors, where you basically summarize all of the news that's going on, and that, it's not literary fiction focused. Tell us, just give us give us a quick pitch for the hot sheet. Uh, the hot sheet is what I call business intelligence for career authors. So it's it's it has a mix of both traditionally published and independently published authors on it. It's anyone who really wants to understand how the industry is changing, what moves are being made by both the big five or big four, as well as the tech companies and independent distributors, whether that's Amazon or Smashwords or or others who are critical to getting books into the marketplace. Ingram would be another. And I, you know, I look at new ventures, new agencies, new imprints, which indicate 
which way the winds are blowing in the market. I look at scandals like the Audible return gate uh, scandal that happened earlier this this month. So I try to bring context and also just a cool head to some of these issues because, I mean, I I don't know about you, but I tend to see often there are camps. So and the indie camp and the traditional camp are often at each other's necks. And I'm trying to like get away from that and look at all authors have common goals and interests. And so let's look at the news or let's look at what's changing and how that affects all of us. Yeah, one of the most common criticisms of this podcast is by both camps saying that I'm too much for the other camp. (laughs) There was was an indie (laughs) podcast and they're like, novel marketing, it's a good podcast, but talks a lot about traditional publishing. Uh, (laughs) Traditional publishing, like novel marketing talks too much about indie publishing. And like, how can, why can't I have a podcast for both? Why do y'all have to be at war? And a lot of authors do both. Like, it's not like you're having to choose one or the other. Now you do, I will say off topic, when you pick indie, you often don't go back. Uh, in my experience, unless you've already been traditionally published. But other than that, people go back. Sometimes they have some books in one, some books in the other. So I I applaud somebody else who's trying to write to both groups. And and it's very clear because on your website, you've got the Authors Guild on one side and the uh, Association of Independent Authors on the other. (laughs) So you're really like trying to be for everybody. And I will say the things that are going on in one affect the other. Like Ingram was backlogged on getting books printed for indie authors. Why? Because all the book printers in the country were printing Obama's manuscript or memoir. Yes. It's like, you wouldn't think that president Obama's book would affect you, but when they're printing over a million copies and all of the printers are running Obama books off 100% of the time and you're in the back of the line, the long lines getting longer. So it does affect. And there are also things that indies are discovering because there's a lot of innovation experimentation going on in indie world that traditional authors can learn from especially in marketing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, in marketing, traditional authors, I wish they would pay much closer attention. Even literary authors, I think I wish they would pay closer attention to what they're doing on the other side. That's right. All right. Uh, Any final tips or encouragement? Uh, I always like to say patience with whatever, whatever strategy you're trying, because I think, especially with literary fiction, it's a long game. You know, a lot, many novels don't even get recognized until years after they come out. And so it just, you have to do one small step at a time. It's, it's rarely when you get a windfall notice or publicity on a single day that makes the difference. Preach. I couldn't agree more. That is true in this industry, not just for literary authors, but really for all authors. There's behind that overnight success often is decades of preparation. And you've got to pick a pace that you can maintain for that time. Well, Jane Friedman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. We'll have links to all of the websites, including the hot sheet and her book on the business of being a writer, as well as to all of the various resources that she mentioned and websites. So if you do want to learn more about these reviews or try to get into the phone book for all of the you know English teachers, we'll have links to all of that. Our sponsor today is the five-year plan to becoming a best-selling author. This is a course focused on helping you develop your craft. It involves reading a lot of books on craft and writing a lot of short stories and writing a lot of books. This is the course for people who want to do it right, who aren't looking to take shortcuts, who aren't looking to get rich quick, who are wanting to start by developing their career and then growing into building 
a powerful platform, and ultimately launching a best-selling book. Each quarter, you're going to learn what to do step-by-step, taught by me and a Hall of Fame Christie Award-winning author, James L. Rubart, whose voice uh, will be familiar to you if you've listened to any of the older episodes of this show. Uh, Patrons of the podcast get 50% off the five-year plan, and you can learn more at authormedia.com forward slash courses. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Lauren Lynch, author of the Time Drifter series, Explore Ancient Civilizations from a Christian Worldview and Historical Fantasy that is appropriate for readers of all ages. So thank you, Lauren Lynch, for being a patron of the podcast. It's your support that helps keep this podcast on the air. And if those of you listening would like to become a patron, you can. Uh, you can do it at patreon.com or you can also find links at authormedia.com or novelmarketing.com. There's lots of ways to find it. And if you want to support the show uh, but can't be- afford to become a patron, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or through audible.com. And you have been listening to Jane Friedman and Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast. To get the recording of this or, uh, delivered to your phone automatically as a subscription, go to authormedia.com. Our audio editing has been provided by William Umstead, and the blog post version of this episode is done by Shauna Letelier. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.